Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Scott Alford. He is one of the top online business mentors and advisors, and he also owns dozens of businesses that have collectively generated tens of millions of dollars. And this done in multiple niches, countries across the world, and so forth. In his new Investing with Scott newsletter, he gives you a behind-the-scenes look into acquiring, building, and scaling businesses based on his experience of helping hundreds of entrepreneurs scale all the way up to seven and eight figures. As an entrepreneur, since he was seven, and by the time he was 16, having a million-dollar business, while ending up a million in debt and now by 31 becoming a decamillionaire, he has a massive amount of insights, understandings, knowledge, and wisdom for scaling and building a business. You can now check what he's up to by going into investing.scottalford.com. If you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's Asynchronous, I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N dot com is just the wingman yourselves needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a really exciting founder. You know, we're gonna be talking about the stuff that we like, building, scaling, financing, and all the above. And I think that you're going to be, you know, really uh, finding inspiring, you know, how this founder, you know, went at it, you know, and never gave up, you know, even when unsuccessful pilots were, you know, piling. But I think that, you know, again, you guys are all going to find this episode super exciting. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sean Grundy. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Happy to be here. So originally you were born in Manhattan, but grew up in New Jersey. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? I would say, thanks to my parents, I had a very easy life growing up. Yeah, I, I lived in a small suburb of New York. My parents always worked in the city. So they would, they would commute in every day while I got to live out where it was peaceful and quiet. I ended up going to middle school and high school actually in the city. So, so I joined them in the, hectic, uh, in, in the hectic commute in. And yeah, it was it was honestly like a nice a, a nice childhood. We we didn't really talk about entrepreneurship as a family. We didn't talk about money. We didn't really talk about business as a family either. So there are pros and cons to that. 
And what about your parents? I mean, what were they, what was their professional careers? I mean, was there any influence that you got from what they were doing professionally? My parents were both commercial bankers. Uh, they actually met working at Chase Manhattan Bank in, in the 70s. I don't think there was a direct influence of their work on, on what I did, but I would say they always had good advice. And whatever situations I ran into early in my career, they had some kind of comparable opportunities or, or comparable experiences that they could relate to. So you ended up uh, going to Princeton and studying philosophy. So out of all things, why philosophy? Yeah, it, it, it was a funny choice. And I like that it's, it's always, philosophy is always cited as the example of the most useless degree. For example, whenever you hear debates about things like student loan forgiveness, you hear comments like, like why should I be paying off the, the student loans of some philosophy major? Like it's always, it's always cited as the most pointless degree. I really enjoyed it. And in the venture world, you hear this phrase a lot these days of first principles, like VCs want to invest in first principles thinkers who like to essentially question every assumption and test the strengths and weaknesses of every argument and think about really like what are our foundations for believing everything that we believe and like knowing for sure what's a fact versus what is an assumption and like what is that assumption based on and and I just love that whole way of thinking like I like I love that whole way of questioning everything and and thinking about like why we believe what we believe and whether whether our beliefs are stable or whether they're they're actually built on shaky foundations and i think philosophy classes just from the first one i took appealed to me because because of that constant questioning like because of the intellectual honesty and the the rigor of critical thinking involved in it i really enjoyed it and i would say to this day i definitely see benefits from studying it like there for sure would have been more useful majors. There's, there's no question about that. But it, it definitely changed the way that I think. And, and I think for me in particular, it was a good fit. Now, after school, I mean, you did travel quite a bit. I mean, Brazil, China. I mean, tell us about, you know, those experiences. And I'm sure that that opened up, you know, your perspective too. Because I think that getting out of the U.S., you know, it's, a, it's quite helpful too, no? To see what's out there. So, so what was that experience for you? Absolutely. So. Yeah, I spent nearly a year in Brazil and nearly a year in China. In Brazil, I was not working. I was more like a international hippie just trying to enjoy life post college, and that that was a that that was a funny experience. I remember my my mom was pretty opposed to it and thought it was a crazy decision to go just live on the beach instead of instead of working and you know paying my dues and building a career. My dad loved the idea and basically thought it'll only get harder as you get older. So might as well go when you're 23. When I was in China, I was there for work. Uh, so so it, was, it was a pretty different experience. But, but overall, yeah, in, in retrospect, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I had those life experiences. I definitely feel like they, they shaped who I am. And, and to your point, they, they maybe, I think these international experiences maybe open up your creativity a little by, by realizing that there are a lot of different ways, uh, a lot of different ways to live your life and a lot of different ways to organize a society. And, and to some extent, we can choose what's a good fit for us. So 
while you were in China and you were a program manager for Rare, you know, mm -hmm. that's the moment where you think that it's time to perhaps get back to school and you went to MIT. So, so what were the triggering events and then what happened there? Because that was quite a big segue into, into your career and, and the decisions that you took with now becoming a founder. That's right. So I was working for an environmental NGO called Rare Conservation. They're headquartered in Washington, D.C., where I started with them, but they have multiple offices globally. And I, I would say there are some things that I loved about the work and then also just some aspects that made me think a for-profit job would be a better fit for me personally. What I loved about the work was that it was genuinely mission-driven. Like, like everyone, everyone who works for an environmental organization like that really cares about what they're doing. They're not typically financially motivated. They're, they're just very motivated to have a positive impact on the world. And it's pretty amazing because you see people come from all walks of life and like all backgrounds and go into, um, into fields like environmental conservation. And it's a community of very smart, very passionate people that like genuinely don't care about money, which, which I think, I think is, I think is interesting because, because I found in the corporate world that there are often stereotypes about people in the nonprofit world. Like it's viewed as maybe a slower paced or like less ambitious culture. And in my experience, that's not really true. Like in my experience, there were a lot of like uh, very smart, very passionate, hardworking people. Uh, they just had, a, I'd say, a very different motivation. I shared their motivation, but as time went on, I'd say two things happened. One is I became a little bit disillusioned by the impact that nonprofits could have just in general. And I became like, like basically what I was seeing, particularly in China, was that Anytime an environmental NGO, even like a huge international one, had an interest that clashed with the local business interest, the business interest would win, like every single time. You, you know, if like a local cement company had an interest in, in a dredging for sand in some lake where there was an endangered species, they would end up getting to do it regardless of what the, the nonprofits wanted. So part of my thought was, if you really want to make an impact, you have to do it from a business perspective because businesses are just inherently, they're bigger, they're better funded, they're more powerful. So I, I really love the idea of a business with an environmental cause rather than a nonprofit with an environmental cause, just because I thought it could be like more powerful, larger, and ultimately more sustainable. So that was part of what inspired me to apply to business school. And then another part, honestly, was just that I, I didn't want to be I, like, I didn't want to be poor forever. Like, I, I thought it was cool to be 25 or 26 and have no money and travel the world and get to have these fun experiences. But I, looking ahead, I was like, I didn't want to be 36 and, and still have no money. So the idea of business school was basically to find the kind of startup that I ended up co-founding with Bevy. The idea was to basically restructure my career where I would keep the environmental mission of the nonprofit, but find, uh, but, but find a career that also essentially would, would personally allow me to do better financially. And then would also end up creating something with a more lasting, like more powerful impact that could, that could really compete against major corporate interests. Now that's interesting because typically when you think about 
you know, something that has, you know, financial, I mean, a lot of cheese at the end of the tunnel, especially when you're in business school and you see all your colleagues, you know, like going into big investment banks or private equity firms or consulting gigs. And, and here you are, you know, you decide to go into founding a company, which, you know, obviously if you are successful and thank God, you know, that you are now in a rocket ship, you know, you can get, you know, that cheese at the end of the tunnel, but it takes a lot to get there versus getting that, you know, income, you know, coming in right away. So how did you decide to go into, you know, starting your own company versus perhaps, you know, the other paths that were a little bit less risky? To, to be honest, it, it was a tricky decision. So yeah, I was at MIT for business school and I love MIT and, and I, I love the business school in particular. Like it, it was a wonderful experience, but from literally the second month of the program, you start getting outreach from corporations that are trying to recruit you. And a very common trend, both at uh, MIT and at many business schools, is that at the start of the year, you meet a lot of people that say they're planning, at the start of the first year, you meet a lot of people that say they're planning to start a business afterward and planning to be entrepreneurs. And by the end of the second year, nearly all of them are joining a consulting firm, a major investment bank, a major tech company. Um, so, so there's a pretty big drop-off rate. And I would say that there honestly was a constant temptation to do that, a especially when you realize like the second year starts nearing an end and you realize that you're not going to have any salary coming in and you could fix that problem very quickly by joining, say, a top-tier consulting firm that part was a little scary. I wouldn't be lying if I said that I, I didn't consider joining corporations. Like I did actually at various points do interviews with different companies. I did get job offers and, and consider them pretty heavily. Um, so I, I was really constantly flirting with that idea of, do I start a business right away? Or, or do I join a corporation, get a few more years of work experience and then start a business? And, and I would say that two things ultimately compelled me to start a business right away, like immediately after graduating. One was just the knowledge of talking to other, talking to other alumni, like talking to alumni from, from MIT. And what I found was that most people, if they start working and say they're going to work for two years and save up money and then start a business, two years later, they've adjusted their lifestyle to needing the higher income. That if they're getting annual raises and that the idea of setting aside that financial opportunity, that like near term financial reward for a highly risky startup just seems crazy, especially if by by that point, a couple of years out, they may have families like it, like it may be just a really difficult decision. So 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 that made me very wary of not starting right away. The other reason was just that. I met um, Eliza Becton, who became my co-founder, and was just really excited to work with her. Um, it's really Eliza, not me, that had the initial idea to disrupt the bottled water industry and to create point-of-use machines that, um, that, that offered high-quality drinks without single-use containers. And I liked her vision. I loved that it was in a gigantic market. I really liked working with her as we started exploring doing, you know, exploring doing this business together. And I thought I had, I thought I really had this rare opportunity in front of me to, to be matched with a really talented co-founder whose skill set was very different from my own. 
And I thought that that opportunity might not come up again. So I just didn't want to let it slip by. So then what happened next? When I met Eliza, she was working as a freelance designer. Eliza studied mechanical engineering at Yale and then went to design school and became a became an industrial designer. So she was working as a, as a designer, helping various startups. We ended up pulling in a third co-founder who was my Frank, who was my classmate from business school. And we started Bevy together officially in the summer after Frank and I graduated, which was 2013. Right as we were getting started, Eliza left her uh, her, her various jobs and committed full-time as well. And we had a phase of about six months where we had no funding, but were working full-time, uh, which was very stressful. And I, I would say like in retrospect, things moved pretty slowly at that time, but, but we were very disciplined as a team. I'd say we're, we were all very serious about like wanting to raise capital as early as possible, just since like we didn't have any other source of income. And we were very disciplined as a team about documenting exactly what it was going to take to raise money and then going out and doing that. So we knew, okay, we need some traction as demonstrated by a successful pilot. We need a prototype that will get investors excited about what we're doing. We need um, to, to file our first patent just to show that we're really just to demonstrate that we're serious about protecting our technology. And we, we put together this list and just went out and executed and tried to knock every item off the list. This ad is brought to you by ShipStation. I mean, I remember when I was saying, doing my book, my previous book, you know, it was incredible, like how much of a nightmare, you know, like shipping all those books to everyone, you know, during the launch was, was, it was, it was really tough. Now, you know, there's this company, it's called ShipStation that sets you up for growth directly by integrating every shopping cart and storefront so that your products are easier to find, easier to manage, uh, easier to get into the hands of the happy customers. So there's no more limiting your business. You can actually right now maximize your sales and save times with consolidated order management and automated shipping updates for your customers. So ship more and grow with ShipStation. Go to ShipStation.com today and sign up with promo code DEALMAKERS to a free 60-day free trial. Start today and get to set up before the biggest shipping season of the year. That's two months free. Visit ShipStation.com and click the microphone at the top and type in code DEALMAKERS. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, 
or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. For the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Bevy? How do you guys make money? Bevy makes money by leasing machines and selling concentrates. So our, our machine leases provide filtered water and sparkling water. And then our concentrates provide flavored and enhanced water. By enhanced, I mean vitamin infused or electrolyte infused, for example. We go to market B2B. So we, we lease our product to offices, hotels, and more and more these days, amenity areas of residential apartment buildings. And we're currently in well over 4,000 uh, B2B companies right now. And any company can have, some, some companies have one bevy machine, some companies now have hundreds of bevy machines. And in your case, I mean, it took a few very unsuccessful pilots to really, you know, get there, to make it happen. Now, at, at what point do you realize, I think we're into something here? That took a while. Uh, it, it took us about over a year to realize that we genuinely had a product market fit. So I would describe our whole year as trying to find product market fit. Now, we knew we had a concept that made sense on paper because we were, we were trying to disrupt an industry that's extremely wasteful. Like in, in the bottled beverage industry, typically, if you're buying a bottle of water or a can of seltzer or like, you know, in, any of these name brand uh, bottled beverages that you'd get in a, in a store, typically less than 10 cents of the money you're spending is, is actually needed to cover the cost of the beverage you're drinking. The vast majority of what you're spending money on is covering the cost of packaging and of distribution. And that, that's just incredibly wasteful. Like if you actually look at the beverage supply chain of how a bottled beverage go, goes from the raw ingredients to getting packaged and then ultimately to getting where you consume it, there are a lot of stops from like distribution center to distribution center to warehouse. There, there are a lot of inefficiencies in the, in the traditional in the traditional beverage industry model. So I'd say we knew that by making high quality drinks at the point of use and essentially filtering tap water like right where, right where people consume the drinks, we knew we had this inherent efficiency that we could capture because we could cut out the cost of the packaging and we could cut out the cost of shipping. So I'd say we knew there was some business model to be found. We just didn't know which one. And we didn't know which one would resonate with, with users or with consumers. And we ended up trying a lot of options. Like in the beginning, we really had it in our minds that users should have to pay for every beverage and that for, for every beverage, someone should have to swipe a credit card or use a payment app. And just because that's what we were so used to seeing in, say, a university environment or in a retail environment. And as our pilots progressed, we found that it, it was quite difficult to actually convince people to pay the same amount or even close to the same amount for, for a drink without a container as, as one you get in a, 
sealed bottle, even if the quality of the drink is exactly the same, like even if the ingredients are exactly the same as what you'd get in the bottle, I, I think we're just kind of conditioned to view to, to view a single use bottle as like something worth paying for. And we're conditioned to things like water fountains being free. So, 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 that, so that ended up being quite difficult. All our early pilots were in consumer locations. And we were really thinking about consumers as, as being the, the, our customers, like, like individual consumers. And what ended up happening was even though none of our pilots actually generated nearly enough, like nearly enough cash to cover the cost of building our, our prototypes, like of building the machines, what ended up happening was users of the prototypes would come to us and say, hey, do you make a version of this for offices? Like, like when I come to the gym, I often just buy uh, vitamin water, or, you know, buy, like buy my own drink. But, but in my office, we go through thousands of bottles of water and thousands of cans of seltzer. And it, it's really environmentally wasteful. And I would love to have some sustainable alternative like what you're offering. So multiple people came to us with that request. And after hearing it two or three times, we started asking people, hey, can I can we come see your office? Like, can I come can I come take a look? And I was honestly blown away to see these like financial services offices and tech company offices, because coming from a nonprofit, we never really got like free beverages at work or like free snacks at work. And I walked into these offices and realized that it was a very, very common practice for companies to give their employees free bottled water, free free flavored seltzer, free vitamin-based drinks, all these options. And the same companies that had environmental sustainability goals often were also providing a lot of single-use plastic for free to their employees. And that's when we realized we had a genuine opportunity because we went in and said, hey, we could offer you all the same beverages, but we can do it in a way that's very sustainable and we can save you money, and we can save you the time that you currently spend stocking a refrigerator every day with these, with these bottles and cans. And the idea just started resonating. Like wh- when we would pitch this concept to companies, they, they would tell, like a phrase we kept hearing was no brainer. We'd pitch the concept and pitch the price, and they would say like, oh, this is a total no brainer. And basically all of a sudden, the same concept that wasn't working for us in a consumer environment when we shifted it over to a B2B corporate environment, it suddenly resonated. And I'd say we knew, we, I, I think we sensed that product market fit, but I, I, I would say we really knew we had it when we were able to sell 10, 10 prototypes at the same price, all to companies in the Boston area. Wow. And we thought, okay, like we currently have no brand. Nobody's ever heard of us. If 10 companies that we didn't really have strong personal connections with all like this product and all like the sound of it just in the Boston area, that means there are going to be a lot more that like it here and beyond. And, and I'd say that's when we knew we, we uh, were onto something big. And in terms of capital raising efforts, how much money have you guys raised to date? We've raised $160 million to date and the, the vast majority of that in the last couple of years. And what has been the experience of raising that money over time from, from, one, from one financing cycle to the next? I would say it gets a little easier, but not that much easier. Like for, for us, I'd say the seed round was the hardest round, but it's, always, it's honestly always a challenge. Over time, 
the the fundraising process I, I'd say moves from being maybe eighty percent vision, like eighty percent vision and team, and twenty percent actual traction and like accomplishments. I'd say that flips over time. Um, the vision is always important, and the team is always important. But as time progresses with each round, I'd say the historical financial numbers become much more important, like like the unit economics, the margins, the growth rate, and then all of the financial details become a lot more important as each round progresses. But but overall, overall, surprisingly, the process hasn't changed too much. Like for us, the, the process of raising a, a round of venture capital is is still pretty similar. And I do like to view it as a process. So what, what do you mean with viewing it as a process? Could you expand on that? Sure. I, I, I essentially view fundraising like a sales funnel where th there are kind of conversion rates from each stage of the funnel, meaning like in, in our experience, more or less, we, ha we have to be speaking with um, two to three investors in a lot of detail about our business like 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 two to three investors have to do real deep dives in order for us to get one term sheet so the way i would think about it is you know say the average is like 2.5 the way i think about it is then okay if we want to have a competitive fundraise and have two term sheets then we need to get five investors who are doing real deep dives into our business and maybe maybe based on our experience it's something like we need we need to have initial conversations with four or five investors in order to get one of them to really take a deep dive and like dig into our financials and study the industry and and seriously consider investing in us so then working backwards maybe we need to to start a process by speaking with uh 20 to 25 investors and i i really i really like view it that way essentially like a sales funnel and, and just uh trying to be focused about finding investors who are likely to be good fits. And I think that that's also just really important for entrepreneurs to know, especially if like us, you're not in a traditional, like, like not, not in the kind of traditional company that a VC would fund. Like, you know, we're not a SaaS business. We're not consumer software, like doing internet connected, inter internet connected beverage machines with a recurring revenue business model is like a bit unusual. And I think what's important to note is that you could be a terrible fit for one investor and a great fit for another investor. And, and just because you're rejected a few times, it doesn't mean VCs don't like you. It just means you're talking to the wrong VCs. So, so it, it is worth noting that like every venture capital firm has its own strategy and they're seeking their own investments. And many of them are want to follow like the status quo and want to invest in recurring revenue SaaS businesses. But many others that are out there are actively trying to diversify and actively trying to invest in uh, like, like highly alternative types of investments. So a lot of the challenge, and I think a lot of the process discipline comes from starting, starting out with an initial list of investors that are likely to be a good fit. And I think the way to get that list is from just, first of all, being out there in the market, talking to other entrepreneurs and learning about who they're meeting and what the investors they're meeting have been looking for. And then the other way is honestly just Crunchbase. Like, like Crunchbase is great now. You can learn a lot from it. Wow, that was that was very very powerful. I'm sure that a lot of people are listening and that are thinking about doing their own raise. You know, they're they're really going to benefit from that. So thank you, Sean. Uh, I guess for people that are listening to get an idea on the scope and size, 
Anything that you can share around Bevy in terms of number of employees or anything that you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. Yeah, we don't publicly reveal revenue numbers just mainly because we have a few competitors and we don't want them to to know how many machines we have out there. We have about 130 employees right now. We'll probably finish the year with about 140 and we're growing quite quickly right now. So if you were to go to sleep tonight, Sean, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Baby is fully realized, what does that world look like? Oh, wow. That would be fun. So the vision of Bevy is really to entirely eliminate single-use bottles and cans. So to wake up tomorrow and see that vision realized, it would mean like going into my own kitchen and seeing a machine installed that's purifying water at the point of use and has little uh, buttons or a touchscreen enabling a wide variety of beverages to be served without w- without single-use containers. It would mean walking downstairs to the coffee shop and seeing instead of a refrigerator with with uh, various bottled drinks and juices in that refrigerator, it would mean, again, seeing some kind of equipment that lets people dispense really like perfect quality drinks without the containers as well. And it would honestly mean everybody walking around with a reusable bottle as well. Wow. Now, if I was to put you into a time machine and I would bring you back in time and I would bring you back to your days in MIT, you know, and having the opportunity there of of sitting that younger Sean and, and giving that younger Sean one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? The, the, advice, the advice would be to think about, first of all, like where I wanted to do the business and th- thinking about how to structure a lifestyle that's somewhat sustainable. Because I, I think I started Bevy really viewing it like a sprint and honestly, not really thinking long term. Starting the business, I I basically imagined that it would either get acquired in a few years or that we would just go bankrupt. And uh, honestly, I probably thought the odds of going bankrupt were were higher than the odds of getting acquired. And when I started it, I candidly didn't realize that a decade later, I would still be running it. And we're now building a business that we expect to last for decades. So my advice would be to to realize that you could be doing this for a very long time and think about how to how to view it more like a marathon than a sprint and how to make sure you're taking care of yourself and just just the thing about your whole life. Yeah, essentially trying to build the business in a way that in a way that also lets you live the life you want. I love that. So, Sean, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, my email is sean at bevy.co. Uh, I spell my name S-E-A-N. So y- you could always reach out to me there. I- I'm on LinkedIn as well. I don't think I, I'm not sure if I have any other social media platforms. I think that might be it. I'm like a LinkedIn super user. Amazing. Well, hey, Sean, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Alejandro. I really appreciate the opportunity. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.